Welcome. You're on Deep Background, the Kansas City Star's newsroom podcast. This is Scott Cannon from the Star. I'm a reporter. I apologize for that uh, walk-in music. That's Dave Helling's cheesy selection from a long time ago. <laughs> and unfortunately, Dave's not with us here today, so we can talk trash about him. Uh, instead, I have some interesting people. Um, Hunter Woodall, the State House correspondent for the Star. Welcome, Hunter. Thanks for having me. And Brian Lowry, our chief political correspondent. Good to have you. Well, this finally explains the origin of the deep background music, which has been yes. something that we've been puzzling over for years. And yes. we can just blame it on Helling. Maybe we get a two-thirds majority vote, we could repeal the Helling podcast. We'll look into it, choice. see what else we can get for free off the yeah. shelf. But uh, the, the bonus to our listeners is that we don't give them any commercials for uh, mail-to-you menus. So that's, that's the payoff here. Um, but let's talk about what happened in Topeka this year. Fascinating year. The biggest thing of all was all that Brownback, the biggest things that Brownback brought in are now gone, right? The, the tax cuts that were going to be a, a shot of adrenaline to the heart of the Kansas economy, which didn't pan out that way. Finally, his own party essentially said, we've had enough. And it was a really interesting process, you know, because you have the three factions in the legislature. You have your moderate Republicans, your conservative Republicans, and the Democrats. And, and at the end of the day, members of all three groups ended up voting, you know, in favor of repealing the tax cuts. Uh, you know, I guess rolling back the tax cuts, rather, because it's not a full repeal, which some people had called for. But it took it took quite a bit of work from uh, all three sides, and they all kind of had to cave at the, you know, the last minute to get this done. Right. There's still a significant number of conservatives, though, who, who held out, and I, I think we saw... Uh, you know, from comments uh, from Chris Kobach's gubernatorial launch, which happened a few days later, that the issue is not exactly dead in Kansas. I think we will still be debating these tax cuts and debating their repeal for at least the next year and a half. It's going to be, it's going to be the key issue of the 2018 election in Kansas. So it was the key issue of this year's session, and it will continue to be uh, the key issue for the next year and a half. Right. And the, the, it brings up a, an age-old argument goes back at least to the Reagan administration, whether supply-side tax cuts can actually generate more revenue for government by stimulating the economy. The, the worry with Kansas was always that, can a state do that? Can, does it have enough leverage on the, the powers of the economy to do so? And Hunter, sort of walk us through what the revenue results, or at least, were for Kansas. Well, you know, obviously there are budget shortfalls, there are budget cuts, and when you look at the projections, um, I believe through the end of this fiscal year, which wraps up, uh, you know, June 30th, the state's projected to have lost about $3.6 in individual income tax revenue because of the tax cuts. And, you know, that's just money that they lost. It didn't get made up in the economic growth that Brownback had said would come along. Kept carving a hole in the budget threatening services across the board. Yeah, and if you go if you go back for a period of about 12 months, Kansas is one of only a handful of states that saw negative job growth, right? lost jobs uh, during a time when the nation has had pretty steady job growth. Uh, you know, those of us who covered Brownback on the 2014 campaign trail remembered that he promised uh, 25,000 uh, new private sector jobs a year. The state's not, not anywhere close to that. I right. think And what what his yeah. his camp would say though is we we were going Right. into head when zero space right. was down, right. ag commodity prices were down, energy prices were down, all things that are significant players in the Kansas economy. Right. But I think when you pair up the fact that the state is broke, we're not getting the job the job numbers that the governor promised, it made it very tough for, for these tax cuts 
uh, to sustain. I would also say that it's, let's not undersell the fact that this was a bipartisan move. You could not have repealed these uh, tax cuts without the Democrats. The Democrats uh, voted almost uniformly uh, for the uh, for the override, and that it was basically it was basically a 50-50 effort almost. Right. For those who are watching, the, the legislature comes in, repeals basically the 2012 plan that Brownback yeah. had gotten through with his legislature. Brownback vetoes that, says no, we got to stick with the plan, and the legislature says no, we can't. So Hunter, you're there, and essentially these folks are making was the probably the most difficult vote someone can do, which is to raise taxes. How much were they struggling with that in terms of the political vulnerability it created for them and their reelection hopes going forward? Well, that was an interesting thing. You have a lot of folks who voted multiple times for this large tax increase. You know, they voted back in February for a billion-dollar tax increase, and the tax increase, you know, they agreed over two years. The tax increase they, you know, voted on this month was a $1.2 billion tax increase over two years. So you I, you had, you know, moderates taking, you know, two, three, I believe even four votes for a tax increase. Democrats resisted a little bit uh, at the end because they didn't think it raised enough money, but they eventually came on board. So a lot of folks did have to take a lot of hard votes, but especially with that, those new moderates, they kind of committed to, we're going to do this, we're going to take this vote. And, I mean, there was some wavering, but... It, Everybody at the end kind of just said, we have to get on board with this. What was the mood like in the chamber right after that final vote? I saw a tweet from our good friend Jonathan uh, Shoreman of the Wichita Eagle, who you share an office with, that it was almost silent in the chamber. That you know, This is one of the most epic uh, things that I think has happened in Topeka is the repeal of these tax cuts. But it was there was almost, was it just such a tough session that they... Or, or, or just is that just such a hard vote that no one could even react? No one was cheering. No one was crying. It was just silence. Well, it was interesting. You know, it, it was a very kind of solemn mood because I think people there was a sense this was going to happen that night. You know, you had people saying before, "We think this is going to get through. We think tonight's the night." So you had a lot of you know. It's always interesting when you have lawmakers from the other chamber coming over to watch. You know, senators like Anthony Hensley, a Topeka Democrat, who's worked you know very hard to try and get these tax cuts rolled back. You know, they're coming in seeing what they've been wanting to see for years. But it was interesting, you know, kind of solemn mood as soon as the vote happened. You know, I'd run o- I ran over to Ron Reichman, the Speaker of the House, who voted to override, but had resisted tax increases for much of the year. And, you know, he, he rushed into his office. He didn't want to talk about it at the moment. So it was a very interesting dynamic. But in the hallway where, you know, a lot of lobbyists were, you had all, some hugging, some handshakes, and everybody just saying they were, a lot of people saying they were relieved to see this happen, you know, the folks who'd wanted to see the tax increase, tax cuts rolled back. Right. And, and my, correct me on this, but my you know, perception from a great distance is that they aren't, they weren't sticking their necks out on a tax increase the way one might usually expect, because this was essentially the mandate of the 2016 election that brought the moderates in. Am I wrong about that? I think, here's the thing. When Brownback got elected, he had a mandate to make the tax cuts. Absolutely. When these lawmakers got elected, they had a mandate to roll back the tax cuts. The next year and a half are still going to be very key in determining how public opinion is. I mean, one thing that we should say that you know some conservatives have complained hasn't gotten enough media coverage is these are uh, retroactive uh, t- uh This is a retroactive tax increase. It goes back to uh, January 1st of this 
current year. So it, it is going to be interesting to see, you know, even though there was, I think, overall very broad support for rolling back the LLC pass-through exemption, that, that's this thing where, you know, if you, if you own a business that files a certain way, you didn't have to pay income tax. When people are paying uh, extra, and the tax. great criticism of that is that people were setting, just restructuring existing businesses to tap into this loophole rather than actually restructuring bringing existing in. businesses, but also maybe just you know creating an arrangement with their boss so they that you know they become an independent consultant so right. they can file as an LLC. Um, but yeah, so that I mean there, that had gotten a lot of national criticism. That policy very, very un, had become very unpopular. But when people have to pay a little bit more income tax on their personal income taxes uh, this year, there may be some blowback. You know, it's I I think right now they they the broad consensus of the Kansas public is that they supported this, particularly when they were looking at uh, the impact to schools and so many other things. But the fact that uh, Kobach, you know, went hard into it the next day, uh, accusing those lawmakers who voted for the tax increase. Of uh, stealing from hardworking Kansans, uh, you know, I get the sense of talking to people on the the right in Kansas that they plan to run against those moderates pretty hard. They plan to run against those Democrats pretty hard, and those conservatives across the line pretty hard about how they raise taxes. And that's what Kobach's campaign is going to be. So, right. you know, it, it's interesting to see do the headwind shift, or you know, do, does the support for rolling back these tax cuts, does it make it through all the way to Right. And so the good news for folks in Kansas is your state government is more solvent than it would have been. There's money for schools, for other state services that you care about. Bad news is it's going to cost you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like essentially we, we have to remember, oh, yeah, we have to actually pay for that stuff. Right. I mean, every now and then can, it seems to be a lesson that Kansas had to keep learning is, oh, yeah, we do actually have to pay for that. And that is, you know, when you, you that was one cr- criticism that when you and I looked into this the next day, there were a number of people, I think, on the right who criticized the fact that Brownback didn't make the deep spending cuts uh, to make these tax cuts work. Now, I think a lot of those same people had at one point thought the tax cuts would pay for themselves, but um, right. And the, 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 it's interesting because there's always something that was wrong about this laboratory of democracy. It, just it wasn't a quite bit sanitized yeah. enough to test these theories yeah. out. But so let's let's switch on one, another way in this which this matters is the school formula, which Kansas is just struggling so hard to get right, both in terms of how to split it up the money and how much to put in there with the courts weighing in heavy. So just sort of walk us through the basics there, Hunter, on, on where we stand now. So, you know, back in March, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled, you know, the funding system is inadequate. You have to, you know, basically make a new formula by June 30th. Not the first time the court said this. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, That's actually Hunter's first week was uh, Hunter's Hunter's first week on the job at the Star. We're coming up on the anniversary of that. Are, yes. Hunter had to cover the 2016 special session on his first three days on the job. Yes, and you you think <laughs> so like, you're going to get one, uh, your one year anniversary. Of yeah, that now. it'll be nice. Thankfully, you you know coming from drowning in a, a politics at that point, but <laughs> no, it's it's been interesting because. You know, almost immediately after they get that ruling, you know, they had a special committee going over in the House, you know, creating a new formula. And of all the committees I sat, I sat in this year, it was one of the more contentious, very, you know, people got very emotional on every side of it. You know, you had tax credit scholarships, you had the funding levels, you had the at-risk programs, and a lot of passion from a very, you know, small group of lawmakers. So the formula they ended up coming out with, you know, has, it raises, it 
raised a net about $488 million over two years for education funding. And Kansas Democrats, uh, for a in a large part, have been very upset about that. They call that woefully inadequate. They think it may trigger a special session, which means, you know, I'll be back in Topeka in July reporting on school finance. Um, so another summer <laughs> spent on school finance, which is always interesting. But, the, you know, a lot of people, we're not even sure what's going to happen with the formula. Brownback at this point hasn't said whether he'll sign it, whether he'll veto it. Um, he has until, I believe, next Monday to decide that. And for perspective, because I think a lot of our, our listeners, they hear $488 million over two years. It sounds like a lot of money. There were a lot of people who, who interpreted the court's March ruling uh, to mean that there would be somewhere be in the neighborhood of 500 to 800 million annually. So this is this is a much more kind of moderate approach to increasing uh, school finance funding, and it, it is pretty uncertain as to whether or not sort of, the court sort of will the, accept it. Am I right? It's sort of legislature saying to the courts. Is this enough? Is yeah. this enough? Yeah, this and enough? that's, and I, I mean, and you can talk to some lawmakers who will even admit to you. It's like, well, we think maybe the court will accept it for one year. I've heard a couple people say that. Um, well, and it was odd, too, because almost as soon as, you know, this formula hit the floor in different versions with slightly different funding levels, both the House and the Senate majority leader said, well, if we don't get it right this time, we can come back to it, you yeah. know, in the summer in a special session, which... You know, they, they already kind of mentally prepared, we might have to come back to this. Right. And so the stakes is, uh, and the, correct me if I'm wrong, Hunter, as of the recording of this, Brownback hasn't actually signed no. the bill yet. So we still need the governor to sign that bill. We're recording this Tuesday evening, everybody care. <laughs> <laughs> he must have got to sign it first thing Wednesday morning yeah. before you post. Um, no, we still need the governor to sign that bill, and then once the governor signs it, attorneys for the state and attorneys for the school districts will have to make legal filings. Uh, presumably, if the court's on an expedited schedule, will give a ruling uh, before the 30th, I think. Maybe school districts will at least hoping so, so they can get some certainty. But yeah, if the court rejects it, they it's unclear. Would they shut down the schools on the 30th? Because that's really what was always the threat if the state didn't meet the court's merit. Will they give the legislature an extension, uh, allowing a special session? Um, we really don't know, which is why I think a lot of Kansas lawmakers, even though they're now through the session, they've passed the tax plan and they passed the budget, they can't exactly breathe easily yet. Right, right. Let's switch gears a little bit. So we also learned about where I can and can't take my pistol, right? Yes, uh, at the moment, uh, Governor Brownback has a bill on his desk that would limit public hospitals could continue to ban concealed handguns. They're uh, they're currently exempt from a state law allowing concealed handguns in m many public places. That exemption was set to expire on July 1st of this year unless they had adequate security in place, like a metal detector and an armed guard. A Which is a very a really daunting expense to them. Right. What was the co cost that Brownback had proposed uh, doing that for both of the state hospitals? I remember like $20 million a year or something yeah, like that. The estimates <laughs> range, which is a point of contention for some lawmakers, because for, there's you know, four state hospitals they picked out, and one estimate for just two of them was about $24 million, and then the they changed the estimate to all four to about $12 million. So the estimates kind of range between that. But still, you know, for a state that's cash-strapped, that was that was quite an expense, uh, and you still have had, had to train people. A lot of lawmakers are, were mad, thinking the state's not prepared if this law takes effect if we don't create this exemption or continue this exemption. Right, and in two of these state state, state hospitals, we're talking about Larned and Oswaldo. We're talking about psychiatric hospitals, uh, in addition to University of Kansas uh, a Hospital. Yeah, but we are talking about psychiatric hospitals where the people who are in those hospitals have. Uh, severe mental issues. Um, 
I it's but yeah, if if Brownback doesn't sign this uh, this bill, theoretically people will be able to bring guns into that right. environment. Starting and am I July. right? Regardless of whether he signs the bill at our public college campuses, um, I'll be able to pack as well. Again, unless they invest in these sort of heavy, these expensive security screenings. Is that right? That, that's correct. There was an effort, you know, this is campus carry we're talking about here. There was an effort during the gun debate in hospitals to try and amend it to expand that exemption to campus carry. That that failed to gain much traction, and some lawmakers, especially at the end of the session, said, we want to at least do the hospitals. We want to get campus carry, but we have to do the hospitals. Um, so that, that debate, I expect to come back, but, you know, a lot of lawmakers were disappointed, especially on the Democratic and moderate Republican side, that they weren't able to, you know, exempt the colleges as well. So starting July 1st, unless KU, you know, adds security at, you know, the entrances of these buildings, you'll be allowed to conceal carry. Right. And this will be forever con- controversial. The sort of good guy with a gun debates right. will stick with us. And, I mean, the NRA wants, if the NRA wants the governor to veto, uh, to veto this bill with the hospitals. He's been urged by Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach to do so. So the 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 hardliners on uh, on gun rights. I think a lot of people probably. I mean, I think a lot of people are surprised that we're we're debating whether or not hospitals should be in state psychiatric whether guns should be in state psychiatric uh, facilities. But there there is a branch out there of the gun rights community that. Uh, that is pretty gung ho on this, right? They, they, they talk about the Second Amendment, and they, they see different yeah. ways of making place, right. places safe. The Andy Marceau, who uh, is also at the Star, our health reporter, during his days as a state house correspondent for the Topeka Capital Journal, told me that this issue of the state hospitals, the psychiatric facilities, came up when they first passed this bill. Um, I, I believe in 2013, uh, and that was a point made and. <laughs> The lawmaker who was carrying the bill at the time argued that if you banned guns at the psychiatric facilities, you would discourage people from seeking help. Right, right. And, and which, which is absurd to the gun control community, but there are an awful lot of people who, who yeah. see safety, not danger, in right. having more people armed. Um, the other th- sort of high-profile issue that the legislature had to deal with, and it was an emotional one, is the uh, regulation of amusement park rides. All of it stemmed from at the Schlitterbahn Park in Kansas City, Kansas, when a day in which legislators were invited to bring their families, um, Caleb Schwab went down the Brooks slide and was killed. And since then, there's been lawsuits and settlements. And what what it brought into sharp focus was that the, the state, it was as it stands, you know, as it stood at the time, the state was free to inspect a ride, make sure the bolts were on tight, and and that, it, as designed, this uh, a ride was operating properly. But no power to look at whether the the ride was safe to begin with. So, can you talk a little bit about how the legislature dealt with it? I mean, it, it, this move to impose stricter regulations moved through, but it wasn't super smooth, right? Well. It- it started in the House, and there was a general sense of even conservative lawmakers were saying, "This we need to tighten this up." You know, the a leading lawmaker said, "This is a weak law. We need to we need to change this." So they went through a few revisions, and you know, imposes you know permitting process with the Department of Labor, um, you know, inspection requirements, creates a fee fund, I believe, and 
it actually moved fairly effectively through the House near un, near un, unanimously, um, and then onto the Senate. There were some discussions. It never got a hearing in the Senate um, back when it passed in April, and there was some hesitation. It did eventually pass. Brownback signed it uh, later in April. The lawmakers actually returned to the, this issue uh, back in May because they said there was a sense the carnivals, actually, like, you know, the homeowned carnivals, carnivals in western Kansas, were not ready to comply with this law that took effect on July 1st. So towards the end of the session, they actually came back and they delayed the criminal And these are the, sort of, these are the moving carnival rides that go at your county fair one week and the next county fair the next and on down the road. Mm-hmm. And they actually, so there's a bill to delay the, delay the law for a full year. On the day they were supposed to debate that bill, uh, in the House, a young girl in Wichita was announced she had died uh, at a carnival, so they called off that debate. And then, but then in June, they actually passed a slightly changed bill that delays the criminal component of the, of the bill from taking, or the law from taking effect on July 1st. It moves it back to January 1st. So it, it, it was all made an effort to get those carnivals a little bit more time to comply. And, and one thing we should we should note, and I, I don't know if, if, if we made this clear, is Caleb Schwab, the, the boy who passed away at Schlitterbahn, is the, is the son of a lawmaker, Scott Schwab, right. Speaker Pro Tem. And that was a day where there were several lawmakers there at the park with their families. So that a lot of the lawmakers... They'd been invited by were, Schlitterbahn. Yeah, they were present. They were there with their families. It was, it was really a traumatic experience for the entire uh, legislature. And, and that's, you know, I think one reason why you saw th- this was this was the least partisan issue, I think, we've, we've seen in a long time. It was much more of almost like the legislature came together as a family um, yeah. on, on this issue. Hunter, do you have any sense of how much that mattered, whether this had it, had it been, you know, my son who had died there in the otherwise identical circumstance, whether the legislature would have been as open to this kind of change? I think a lot of lawmakers are very sympathetic to, uh, to the Schwab family. And, you know, Scott Schwab is a speaker pro tem, you know, high-ranking member of the House. And he, he really kind of refused publicly to talk about the bill until he gave a very kind of emotional um, speech about the bill shortly before it passed the House. And a lot of folks, you know, respect Schwab, and they, they were able to get behind this fairly quickly. There were, there were a lot of emotions even when it stalled briefly in the Senate that they just wanted to get this through and get this over with. Right. So you had a yet another long session, which nobody but State House correspondents really cares or feels much sympathy for you on, but we appreciate the work you did there. Thank what you. What's the next big thing? Is it the uh, will we have much action based on what Brownback does in the next few days? Well, it'll be interesting if uh, if he does veto this gun bill, I think an effort could be made to try and override him. I'm not sure if the votes are there. It passed with a veto-proof majority. And when could they do that? Uh, Signy die. The legislature uh, still has technically one day left, which just chafed me a little bit because uh, I covered the <laughs> I covered the 2015 session for uh, the Wichita Eagle. It was the longest session in Kansas history. But if they do work that day, you guys will tie it. So. Kudos. Uh, yeah. I'm going to get a T-shirt, we'll actually. We'll be tied for the longest session in, you guys in can, history. Can, um, can compare nerd so, records over the so, uh, But, yeah, okay. no, on signee die, which uh, is the, the official ceremonial end uh, to the legislative session, uh, the, it, they have in recent years had to actually pass legislation uh, and have debates on signee die. So that's uh, end of this month? June 26th. Yeah. Yes. And we've had an awful lot of speculation about whether Brownback's going to end up in the Trump administration, which seems to dwindle with each day that he's not. But in some ways, isn't the Brownback era over in Kansas? His big thing, big tax 
well, kind would, of has been tossed aside. I would I would say on the first point is you know the the as far as the speculation on the on the him joining the Trump administration that goes up and down. You know, uh, it you know in the Brownback. Keep in mind he did go to Washington to visit with the president two days after these tax cuts get got repealed. But yeah, I think certainly Brownback's period as being. Uh, the most powerful man in Kansas has come to an end, uh, regardless of whether he leaves in a month or two to take a job in the Trump right, well, administration. Well, there's always talk of a chief executive in those last two or, years of office yeah. as some of a lame duck, but it seems to me even more yeah. pronounced given that his agenda has been rejected by the current legislature. Right. I mean, the tax cuts were a signature policy, and they're gone, and that's really significant. I mean, that they, they've been erased, essentially. That said... Look, Brownback privatized the Medicaid system. He made major changes uh, to welfare. There's still going to be a lot of policies left on the books in Kansas uh, to remind you that Sam Brownback was That's here. Right. Issues like abortion, certainly, huh. right? Yeah. yeah. Which, okay. <laughs> which what was the you what you were one of the other state house? He signed an abortion-related bill. The day after the uh, the day after the tax cuts were officially overridden, he did. Yes, now in, in Kansas soon, you will 24 hours before an abortion, uh, you need to be provided with a doctor's credentials and a white piece of paper in 12 point Times New Roman font in black ink. All right, we're into fonts now. All right, fellas, thanks for joining us here on Deep Background. I think it's time we uh, listen to a little Dave Helling cheesy music. But thank you, Ryan Lowry. This podcast brought Woodall. to you by Dave Helling. <laughs> You've been on Deep Background. <laughs>